Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you today with adoration and praise because of your righteousness. Your creation and the order you instilled in it is perfect, and we are blessed in your provision. Any defect in your creation is due to the sin that we have allowed to twist it. You are the sustainer and savior of your people, and your grace overflows by common means, even to those that don't know you. You are worthy of our praise, and you are worthy of our worship. We confess to you this week that our minds have been consumed with things other than your glory, other than our training in godliness. Many of the things that have consumed us are good and bring us joy, and we thank you for that. But we also admit that many of the things that have consumed our time and energy are from the chaos that flows around us and the division and lies sown by the adversary. Even though you are trustworthy, we have at times allowed our trust to fade and our faith to lessen, even this week. Rather than speaking thanksgiving without end, we have grumbled at times and asserted our sovereignty when we should have been bowing to yours. Please forgive us and reestablish us in your truth this morning. We also come to you to give thanks. We give thanks to you this morning first for you and your good character and plan. We give thanks for the salvation you have given us through your son, Jesus. We give thanks that we have the hope of resurrection and eternal life with you. We give thanks for one another and the way that you use us as a body to encourage one another and sanctify each other. Please forgive us where we have pursued or accepted division and help us to grow in our unity based on your gospel and nothing else. We also give thanks for other believers and pray specifically for Temple Philadelphia in Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso, and Pastor Marcel and his staff. Please care for and protect them as they continue to encounter famine. Thank you for your provision to us that we can pass on to them to bring them food in their time of need. Thank you for Pastor Virgil and Redemption Church and his help and support even this week. Please continue to use them in the Portland area to bring about your righteousness and peace. We thank you for Pastor Lauren and the Fellowship at Bend and all they are doing to preach your gospel. Please encourage them in this time. And thank you for our brother Matt Porter and his leaders in church at Outward Church here in Salem. Please go before them in their latest effort to plant a church in Silverton so that the gospel is proclaimed widely. We also give thanks this morning for the su successful adoption of Elias Finn into the Cole family and into this greater family of believers. Thank you, God, for your graciousness in bringing both Lano and Finn into that family. And we pray for your continued guidance and direction with Naya and her situation as well. Thank you also for the healthy birth of Bowden and his welcome into the Hadley family and this church family. We pray for rest and continued health for Esther, Nathan, and Bowden. Lord, we also have much to ask of you this week. Please intervene in our world to bring an end to the chaos caused by COVID-19. Please bring an end to the sickness or at least to all the harm and all its ramifications in this society. Please bring rain to the West Coast and comfort those affected by the fires. Please bring wisdom to our governmental leaders that they might be brought to their knees in submission to your wisdom and rule. And please comfort and protect our brothers and sisters in Haiti as they wrestle with the aftermath of the earthquake last week. Please comfort and protect our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan as they cry out to you for protection in what is now, again, a land of intense persecution. And finally, Lord, we pray for ourselves 
We ask for your healing and guidance and wisdom for Jenna Hill as she works with doctors to find an answer for her heart concerns. We pray for a calm and uneventful and effective surgery for Tom Matson as he goes in for surgery tomorrow. Please be with the surgeons and medical staff. Please provide quick healing and freedom from pain and patience for Tom. And please grant Dinah and their children an extra measure of comfort and peace and give Dinah the energy she needs to care for her family in the coming weeks. Please provide them with a knowledge that they are loved and have a church family who can support them. Lord, for all those who may be dealing with sickness of various sorts in this church, we ask you for your healing in their lives. In all these things, we ask, though, that your will, not our own, be done because we trust in you. And so as we step into your word now, Lord, please give us illumination of your truth and let it transform us from glory to glory into the image of your Son. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Why don't you have a seat? And you can open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 11. First Timothy 4, starting in verse 11. When you can't see your way that you are going or where you are going, it is so important to have a trusty compass. In our current technological uh, and technologically dependent world, this illustration may fail to hit the mark as it may have done back in the days when many of us were in Boy Scouts, but this illustration is still important because you might say, well, even now we have GPS, but it still remains true that when you can't see your way because of all the murkiness and confusion around you, you need a good compass to find your way. You need something that you can focus on, uh, that you can pay attention to, that will guide you to where you need to go. Now, years ago, my wife and I were taking our advanced scuba diving test, and in that test, the diver must complete a number of tests for advanced skills such as night diving, rescue diving, and other kinds. And one of the skills we chose to take on was underwater navigation, and this is a joke if you know me. Uh, I have such bad sense of direction that I inherited from a family member who will remain unknown uh, that I, uh, when I'm about to turn somewhere, I ask myself, which way seems right, and then I always go the opposite direction. So if you're ever lost with me, don't follow me. Now, we tested this navigation, underwater navigation, in the Puget Sound in the midst of winter and during a day that was particularly choppy in the Sound. And so visibility was literally only a couple of feet, maybe even a foot in front of us. You had to bring the compass about right here. And the goal was to start at one point to work your way around in a square, hitting certain other points and ending up back where you started. And the only way you could do this successfully is if you followed your compass. As the water grew murkier and murkier, more cloudy and confusing, we were able to look down at the simple compass in our hands to keep us going in a straight line to our destination. If we took our eyes off of that, even for a moment, in one degree of movement, and focused on the unclear waters around us, we would immediately go off track and lose ourselves. And the key was to keep moving forward, inch by inch, never taking our eyes off of the compass. Even if a, sw a fish swam in front of us or a sea lion, we would keep going forward. And this idea has been important to me over the years as issues have come up and they cloud my vision of what it is to lead the church or preach the gospel or even to, just to be a Christian in this world. You see, since I was a deacon, I have made it a practice to hold in my Bible a reminder from a Christian man who has gone before me of the focus that I should have. In one of my oldest Bibles from before the first days of Mission Fellowship is a quote from Oswald Chambers. Many of you have uh, sat in his devotional before. It says this, 
Never choose to be a worker for God. But once God has placed this call on you, woe be to you if you turn aside to the right hand or the left. We are not here to work for God because we have chosen to do so, but because God has laid hold of us. Once he has done so, we never have the thought, well, I'm really not suited for this. What you are to preach is also determined by God, not by your own natural leanings or desires. Keep your soul steadfastly related to God, and remember that you are called not simply to convey your testimony, but also to preach the gospel. Now, this simple quote that was in my Bible, reinforcing truths that we've found in 1 Timothy, has held me steady in many moments where the surrounding waters have become exceedingly murky and dark, and I've wanted to even give up, but I've kept that compass in front of me. For Timothy in Ephesus, the situation inside and outside the church that we're encountering here as we read 1 Timothy, it had become similarly murky. Brothers and sisters in the church were dealing with false doctrine and errant leaders, a surrounding culture that was delving deeper and deeper into paganism and the cult of the Caesar and hatred for Christianity. And so Paul was writing to Timothy to help him focus on what Paul knew to be true, to give him a compass, if you will. And in this letter, Paul focuses on the purpose of the church, the household of faith, a pillar and bulwark of the truth. And Paul knows that where leaders lead will either keep the church going in the appropriate direction, proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus and having their hopes set on him and on his reign, or the church would falter, following the errant leaders in a direction that would lead far away from Christ. It's because of all this that Paul is building up Timothy's knowledge of what constitutes a good servant of Jesus Christ, so that Timothy can have clarity amidst the murkiness of all that surrounds him and wants to drag him away from that truth. And I wonder, dear brothers and sisters, if we need this same clarity today, not only as leaders and potential leaders here in the church, but simply as servants of Christ in the midst of a confused and confusing world. And so today we are presented with further help in determining who to follow and what we should aspire to be by the power of the Spirit as we look at Paul's instructions for the good servant of Christ Jesus. Paul's instructions for the good servant of Christ Jesus. That's our title for the sermon this morning. Paul spent three, uh, excuse me, chapter three, outlining the character of the elder pastor that undergirds all they should be. Now he will spend his time giving clear instructions to Timothy to tell him not only who he should be, but what an elder pastor should do. And I believe this will be fruitful for all of us because it will give us clarity in what we should do as well, just as congregants. But it will also help you understand the role of the pastor elder. And in this world that expects elders and pastors to be all things to all people, to be the CEO, the entertainer, the comic, and everything else in between, this may bring clarity even for you, as to what we elders and pastors are to do as we attempt to rise to the standard of being good servants of Christ. Love what Paul says, not that I have already arrived, but I strive onward. And that should be our goal for all of us to be good servants of Christ. Amen? So let's begin this morning <clears throat> by taking a look at our text in the context of the full chapter as I read from verses 1 through 10 and then enter into our text this morning in verses 11 through chapter 5, verse 2. So let's go ahead and read that this morning. 
Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now our text for this morning. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, a younger men, uh, younger men as brothers." Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. What we see this morning is really one main point broken down into 10 subpoints. When you have a list like this, it's actually uh, somewhat easy to break it apart and understand what he's saying because they're what's called imperatives, they're commands. He's saying, do this. And so if Paul is saying, do this to Timothy, then we as pastors and elders definitely need to listen to it. Uh, but then also we as congregants can ask, are these things applicable to us? And I believe we will find that they are. And so we will see these 10 subpoints. But first, if you want to just write down the overall idea, it's similar to the title. It's just 10 instructions from Paul to Timothy on being a good servant of Christ Jesus. 10 instructions. And so it may get monotonous. You may think, oh no, Hans usually does three points. Now he's got 10. We're going to be here all day. No, we'll break them down a little bit more quickly uh, so we're within the same time. But 10 subsections, 10 instructions on serving Christ Jesus. Now, I will spend the majority of our time unpacking each of these items, the first two of which were discussed in depth last week as they come from verses 1 through 10. And we'll just do a quick review of those. First, the good servant of Christ Jesus is to rebuke errant doctrine and false asceticism. Rebuke errant doctrine and false asceticism. Timothy's first job as outlined in chapter 1, verse 3, was to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And this makes great sense when we realize that errant doctrine is, as we discussed last week, presented by deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, and that the result of following them is destruction and hell. It is therefore right and good that the good servant of Christ Jesus would call out firmly and consistently errant doctrine and asceticism that comes not from faith, but from pride. 
You see, that's where errant doctrine comes from, is pride that we know better than the Lord. We know better because it's 2021. We know better because we're more enlightened. We know better because we have more science. We know better. All of this comes from pride, not faith. The false gospel of niceness and tolerance in the Pacific Northwest, let me repeat that, the false gospel of niceness and tolerance in the Pacific Northwest fosters an unwillingness to point out false doctrine when we see it, because that wouldn't be what? Nice. It wouldn't be nice. Not even loving. Somebody said loving. Love is speaking the truth in the spirit of Christ. It's about niceness. People are worried about niceness. And many have been lulled into believing that as long as the name Jesus is mentioned, it must be the same gospel. But remember, it is exactly because false Christs and false versions of the gospel would fill the world that Jesus warned us to be on guard. And so we saw last week that Timothy would rebuke false doctrine, just as Paul models. A church and a pastor that is unwilling to rebuke false doctrine is leading their sheep astray even if it's by omission. A good servant of Christ Jesus will rebuke errant doctrine and false asceticism. If you want more on that, go listen to the teaching from last week. Secondly, last week we saw that Timothy was to follow the command to train yourself in good doctrine set upon the gospel. Train yourself in good doctrine set upon the gospel. In contrast to the false asceticism, we learned last week that Timothy was to discipline himself, but not in self-denial of things that God had actually declared good, marriage and foods, uh, certain foods most likely meat in this case. Rather, Timothy was to train himself in all that flowed from God's good created order, God's declaration of what is good and what is evil. Because remember, in the beginning, the main sin wasn't that they made the wrong choice for what fruit to eat. The sin was that they decided, Adam and Eve, our first mother and father, like you and I, decided to uh, determine what is good and evil and become the judges of good and evil themselves. And so God declared what is good and evil, and he has provided a means of salvation through Jesus Christ in order to counteract and go against and and, uh, redeem that original sin through Jesus Christ, who had died in our stead and resurrected from the dead, and is now our Savior, and as Paul calls him here, the living God. In response, what we are to do is we are to repent from our sins, from our inclination to decide what is good and evil on our own, outside of God's word, and then to turn and worship to Christ and be baptized as an outward sign of this repentance and as an oath sign of stepping into the people of God. It is upon the foundations of this gospel truth, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement, and our response to it. It's upon the foundations of this gospel truth that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, such as ourselves. And it's in this that we train for godliness. We are to know, understand, and be ready to proclaim the fact that the world is in rebellion against Christ and in need of his death and substitutionary atonement for their sins. We have to be ready to proclaim that. And then in dying, what Christ did, and in resurrecting three days later, he paid for and showed a proven victory over our sin, and the sin led into the world. This is the message that the world needs. And so our hope is in him, 
the one true living God who reigns over his church. Everything else in the world, friends, will let you down or have a probability that's very great in letting you down. But setting our hope in the living God and the salvation he brings to his people will not disappoint. Now you might say, Hans, I, I am disappointed. I, I've followed Christ for years and my life hasn't turned out how I want. Well, that means you haven't been following Christ. You've been trying to drag him behind you as if he were your servant. In this world, we will have trouble, but the reason that Christ does not disappoint is that eternal life has been granted to you by his death and resurrection if you bow your knee to him as Lord. A good servant of Christ Jesus will train themselves in this good doctrine set upon the one true gospel, and it is from this overall statement that the remaining eight imperatives or commands can proceed. And so the third one that we see from our teaching this morning in verse 11 is Paul issues the directive to Timothy to command and teach good doctrine. Command and teach this good apostolic doctrine uh, that is circulating at the time. What he is referring to with these things, because he says command and teach these things, is really all that has been spoken of thus far in the letter, especially the first two items that we covered. These things is a phrase you'll notice is used seven times in this letter. It's used once in 2 Timothy, and it's used repetitively to reinforce the very nature of what Paul is talking about and that it's of the utmost importance. You see, Paul is speaking to a church that is dying because it's gone a few degrees off the rails and it's continuing in that direction. And so these instructions are a matter of life and death. They're not just things that you throw on top like sprinkles on a Sunday. These are life and death. This is why the first imperative is to command. Now in our world of hypersensitivity and sensitivity training and microaggressions, this sounds harsh command? Does anybody command anymore? But if the instructions Paul is giving are indeed the difference between leading to heresy and ultimate destruction or truth and health for the local church, then command is the correct word. It means to insist on these things being done. Friends, it's like this. Is there a necessity to command your child to go get the milk out of the fridge? No. But if your child is about to step off into traffic and there is a semi barreling down on them, do you take time to think about their sensitivity? No, you say, stop! And maybe even reach out and jerk them back. Why? Because it's life and death. Friends, we have been lulled into this idea that good doctrine is not an issue of life and death. And so we can let anything be promoted That would be like you as a parent saying, let's see how this turns out. I wonder if they'll actually be smashed. The church is going to look back and find out they were that parent if it doesn't start stepping up and proclaiming good doctrine and commanding and teaching their church to follow it. Amen? Amen. If the word of God is inspired and errant and sufficient for instruction toward eternal life and the pursuit of godliness, then we must insist on things being done as the word of God commands. This is why the imperative of command is followed by the imperative to teach, because the heart of the church and the individuals within it should be seeking out and fully understanding the word of God as it's written to be understood. And if the elder pastor is insisting and commanding a certain course of action, 
and they receive pushback, I receive pushback, then it's healthy and right and good to then go to that person. And for the pastor elder to go back to the word, to understand if they are indeed in line with the word, and then reach out and teach those who might disagree. I want to instill in this church a culture that when we disagree with each other on doctrinal issues, we don't do it without our Bible open. In fact, we have our Bible open, and we're both pouring into it to seek out the truth. But friends, this only works if we are all on the same page about the authority of the word and its place in setting forth the structure of the church. Back to chapter 3, uh, verses 15 and 16, how we ought to behave in the household of God. That's why this is in front of us. Brothers and sisters, especially those of you that are members, if any of us in this church do not completely submit to God's inspired word as an external truth of, uh, source of truth, then we will be let off course. I continue to be a bit shocked, I shouldn't be anymore, that members of this church think that there are pieces of the Bible that they can pick and choose because it doesn't meet what they think. Friends, we have to go back to the Word of God. If we all submit to this truth as the ultimate authority of this church and strive to study it together, then we will find ourselves in far deeper unity than we can even comprehend. If we try to pull one another towards our opinions outside of the Word of God, then division will increase. We want unity, not division. And so a good servant of Christ Jesus will command and teach the good doctrine laid out by the apostles. Command and teach. Fourth, the good servant of Christ will set an example of godliness. Most commentators and theologians agree that most likely... Timothy is around his late 20s or early 30s at the latest. He was most likely not married as well. And both of these traits meant that in this culture, Timothy would be considered too young to listen to and would be dismissed. So Paul tells him to not let this bother him. Instead, Paul encourages Timothy to prove to those that might dismiss him that he is indeed worthy of the role of pastor, elder, and teacher because of the wisdom and godliness seen in his example. Friends, so much of life, and especially Christian discipleship, is caught, not taught. So Paul notes five areas that the good servant will model. They're right there in your text if you want to write them down. That's why I don't have a separate slide. The first is speech, and then conduct, and then love, and then faith, and fifth, purity. The good servant is to model speech. Good speech, what we say, needs to be God-glorifying and useful for building up into the image of Christ. Secondly, conduct. Our actions need to, be, to meet our proclamation that we are disciples submitted to the law of love put forth by Jesus. Third, love. That our relationships are characterized by covenant faithfulness, by selflessness, by repentance and forgiveness. By charity, especially charity on secondary issues where there's not a clear leaning in Scripture. Then faith, faith in the Lord, that we trust the Lord, we trust that He is good even when life doesn't make sense, that He is the perfect provider and that we rely upon Him. And then also, the good servant must model an example purity. In the context of what is happening in Ephesus, this means that Timothy was to pursue purity with respect to sexuality. 
Some of these false leaders, it seems, from 2 Timothy were going in and uh, enticing women uh, to become sexual with them. And so this is in respect to sexuality, but it could mean even more than that, such as a general distance from the worldliness that surrounded him. In all these areas, the good servant of Christ will set an example of godliness. Friends, do you realize that you set an example? You might say, Hans, you're, you're the example. You're up on stage. You're six foot ten. You know, you kind of stick out of a crowd. You're the example. Or uh, maybe you say, the elders are the example, Tyler and Ryan, you guys. No, absolutely, that is true. All those things are true. And we must example and model. And that includes repentance when we find out that we're wrong because we're errant men. But do you realize that you model for each other? Parents, do you recognize that you model for your kids? If you don't immerse yourself, as we'll find out here in a minute, in the things of God, if you don't participate in the gathering and community group and discipleship group, then what are your kids going to model? I'm shocked by parents. I remember years ago as a deacon, I was standing there watching a dad yell at his daughter for forgetting her Bible. Guess what kind of Bible he had? None. And yet he was yelling at her for forgetting her Bible. I wonder where she learned it. I learned it by watching you. (laughs) We model for each other. And friends, if you are modeling something other than what you try to hold other people to, you should probably think twice. Are you modeling for other people in this church what they need to see in the example of a good servant of Christ? In all these areas, the good servant of Christ will set an example of godliness. Fifth, Paul gives the imperative to Timothy to devote yourself to calling others to this good doctrine to devote yourself to calling others to this good doctrine. He says in verse 13, until I come devote yourself, and then he lists three things again, public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. You might say, Hans, what about, uh, where do you get calling others to this good doctrine? Well, doing those things, friends, is calling others to the good doctrine, to come away from their opinions and come back to Christ. So he breaks this down into a sublist. Those three things, public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching, all of these, it seems, spring out of the surrounding heresy and lack of health in the Ephesian church for which Paul has sent Timothy to provide healing. You see, when churches are in conflict or there is divided opinion about any topic whatsoever, the job of the pastor elder is to draw everyone back to a reconciled position with God in submission to his word, and then the other topics, if they're secondary topics, will not stand as dividers. And this is the unity that the Holy Spirit brings. In the Old Testament, you can think of the covenant laid out in Deuteronomy, for example, where it requires reading publicly to draw people back into the Word of God, that the Word of God was to be read regularly for this purpose. Here's an example from Deuteronomy just to show you. Deuteronomy 31, 12 through 13, it's within the covenant uh, in, in Deuteronomy there. It says, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So they were to read it publicly because just the simple reading of God's word out loud, it draws your heart back. This is a great tool for personal devotion as well. It's amazing how many times you might read it in silence and it doesn't hit, but the second you read it out loud, oh, wow. This is a great tool for family devotions. Read the Word of God. Hans, I don't know how to run family devotions. I'm a new Christian. Awesome. Pick up the Bible, read a few verses for your family. Just read the Word of God out loud. It's an amazing thing. 
You could also think back to the example of when Josiah read the word of God aloud with all the elders of Israel to reform their worship. And this action is a call to unity in the spirit and submission to God's word and authority. It's why the public reading of God's word is core to our liturgy. It's why we do it so often. But then this is to be paired with both exhortation, in which you strongly encourage or urge someone to a suggested end, and teaching, in which there is explanation. Throughout the Old Testament, these two actions seem to go right along with the public reading of Scripture. You can think, for example, of Nehemiah and Ezra reading the Word of God publicly to draw the people back to the worship of Yahweh, but then having men in the crowd, in the congregation, explaining it and urging the people, exhorting them to follow it. Paul is calling Timothy to utilize these God-given tools to draw the local church of Ephesus back to God's word. Good servants of Christ Jesus devote themselves to calling others to God's good doctrine. And friends, I want to emphasize for those of you that say, oh, I'm not good at teaching. This isn't for me. I may not be the right person to teach. I want to tell you that's okay. If you're not a teacher, that's okay. The key here is simply establishing a culture in which we call one another to God's word regularly in every situation. Be it celebration. What's God's word say about that? Let's praise him together. Or tribulation. What's God's word say that can guide us in the circumstance? We in this church need to call one another toward the good doctrine of God's word in every situation. Well, sixth, Paul tells Timothy to steward the gift of God's calling and provision. Steward the gift of God's calling and provision. Paul begins this statement with a call to not neglect his gift. Such an interesting way of putting it. To be good stewards of the gifts and calling God has given us, we need to first realize that it's so easy to neglect them, isn't it? It's our innate gear as sinful, rebellious human beings to go our own direction with our own mission and to glorify ourselves. And in so doing, we neglect oftentimes the very things God has given us to use for his kingdom. But by the grace of God, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, God the Father has saved us. He's reconciled us. And he's given us back our true identity as children and servants of the Most High God. It is in Christ you will find your true identity. Such a message that this world needs to hear right now. And part and parcel to that is the need to submit our mission, our purpose in life, our gifts and our calling ultimately to God's calling. For Timothy, this meant that the council of elders placed their hands on him as a form of passing off authority and uh, ordaining him, we would say, in our, our current nomenclature for the work of ministry. As part of this anointing, it seems that there was also a statement of how Timothy would use his gifts. Now, you might think this is one that is not at all applicable to me. I've heard this so many times in the church Dear saints who are so good-hearted, but they come to me and they say, I, yeah, I just don't have any gifts. I, I, you, know, you might have a gift, Hans, but I, I don't have one. You might say, I'm just a congregant, a disciple, but I have no special gift to neglect. But that is a misunderstanding of spiritual gifts within the church. You see, God is identified in Scripture as the giver of gifts. He is the provider And he first provided the gift of salvation that only comes by his grace through faith in his goodness of character, in his salvation. And then he sent the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell within his people, the church. And the Holy Spirit does his work by drawing men and women into the church 
and uniting them with God's people within the, the, the case of a local church. Each of his people, the book of Ephesians declares, are then gifts to one another before we ever even act. Let that sit. The people of God are gifts to and for one another before we ever even act. Parents, think about kiddos, or maybe you have a niece or a nephew. When they come along, you don't go, oh man, that thing is just pooping and eating, so worthless. No, you go, what a gift. Why? Because they exist in your life. And you have been given a task and responsibility to love them and disciple them. Does that not sound like your brothers and sisters in Christ? But then there's another level, because all of us are built differently and with different skills and talents and likes and dislikes, and more importantly, with different spheres of influence and relationship, even within the church. So with this in mind, we understand what Paul says elsewhere, that we have each been given the calling, here's your calling if you don't have a calling yet, of being disciples of Jesus as we've been called into God's people within a local church. So you and I have each been called to serve Christ with his people. Dear friend, don't neglect that calling. It's the highest calling you're ever going to get. Don't neglect the fact that this church family is better because you have been called to it. And you might say, uh, Hans, I, I don't know. I, I, I got a lot of stuff in my life. I'm pretty broken. I don't know that I'm a gift to this church. Well, brother or sister, the reality is, is we get to minister to you. What a gift that is. Amen. What a gift it is that we get to love one another. And recognize that what you have, uh, that you have what you need to make an impact right here and right now. Like Timothy, steward your calling by using it to serve Christ's body made up of his people. The good servant of Christ Jesus will steward the gift of God's calling and provision of talents and gifts for his glory. Amen? Amen. Seventh, Paul calls Timothy to immerse himself in the process of sanctification. Immerse himself in the process of sanctification. All we're talking about here is in the process of sanctification because it's the life of a Christian. It's part of what we do. It's how we pursue Christ and his word. And so in verse 15, Paul says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Now, this one is pretty self-explanatory. Paul says to practice, meaning constant repetition until mastery is achieved. And we know that in this life, the mastery of being like Christ cannot be achieved fully, so we continue to practice. But you might say, what point is the practice if you can never reach perfection? I don't know. Go talk to Michael Jordan. He might be too old. Go talk to LeBron James, <laughs> right? <laughs> to what end am I to practice if I can't reach perfection, you might ask? Well, so that others might be encouraged in the growth that they see. As we noted earlier, Timothy was a young buck when he went to serve the local church of Ephesus. And so, as any young church planter knows well, we make a lot of mistakes and are regularly humbled. And those moments can be discouraging if you set your expectation on being perfect and meeting everyone's needs perfectly. It's a quick way to burn out. Paul takes the pressure off by saying, Timothy, don't worry about having arrived. Instead, just 
show progress. Progress is what a healthy church will look for in one another. Friends, if you ever sit down with a brother or sister and they say to you, hey, I noticed this sin in your life and there really needs to be repentance, don't worry about becoming perfect in it. Worry about working together for forward progress. The key is not to go about that practice and progress half-hearted, though, because then you're probably falling into what's called an antinomian cheap grace gospel. Well, I keep practicing, but I also keep failing. Eh, there's got to be forward progress. If you're only ever shooting air balls, you're probably practicing basketball wrong, right? But you're to immerse yourself in it, not go half-hearted. We all know what this means, don't we? When you put a sponge into water with an intent to immerse it, you don't just dip the corner in. You plunge it into the water. There's a connotation here that Timothy must devote his life, his time, talents, and energy to this example and pursuit of godliness. And what I have found in the church is that, friends, you know where you're at in that. You know if Christianity is something that's just kind of an addition to your life. You've got all this other stuff, and yeah, I've got to go to church on Sunday. Or if you are immersing yourself into the Word of God. And it's hardest to do when you've been doing it for a long time, Amen. When you're super passionate and a new believer, oh, it's easy. Oh, I have this emotion to drive me. But as you get older and life kicks in and you got t-ball practice and you got taking out the garbage and you got all the stuff that comes with adulting, right? That's when we need to focus to immerse ourselves. What we must ingrain as part of the culture of this church is that we are not here for perfect people. We are here to proclaim the gospel as people who immerse ourselves in it first taking in the fullness of his grace without which we are not saved nor can we make forward progress. And then striving within his spirit for godliness, showing our progress one consistent step at a time. Those of you in this church who are the ones who seem to beat up on yourselves the most for not being godly enough, the ones who will probably go away from this teaching going, oh man, I don't measure up. You are the very ones who need to look back and see your progress. And give thanks to God, because I do. Tyler does. Ryan does. We are so thankful for your progress. It's those of you who are like, now nah, this is for somebody else. You are the ones that need to listen. You need to immerse yourself. A good servant of Christ Jesus will immerse oneself in the process of sanctification. You still with me? All right. Number eight, Paul tells Timothy to guard himself. Guard himself and his witness at all times. He says in verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. In Ephesus, there were many forces such as the deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, as well as the human opposition and probably even a bit of Timothy's own fear or anxiety within him, because uh, it says later that he has an ulcer. <laughs> He's so burnt out. Uh, he, these all things, they were fighting against him. And there were most likely many things that would have dissuaded Timothy from completing his task. So Paul tells him, keep a close watch on himself and on his teaching. On himself means on his character, his walk with Christ, and his purity. This is the, the stuff that you need to watch when no one else is watching. He was to be ready to fight against temptation and discouragement at all times. Watching his teaching meant that he could not get lax in going with the latest fads or 
buying into the latest popular lies or trendy errant theologies. He was to hold fast to the rightly spoken gospel and the word of God, even if it made him unpopular. A good servant of Christ Jesus knows that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle, and so they do not get pulled away from the fight or lulled to sleep. They guard themselves and their witness and teaching at all times. Friends, when you wake up in the morning, are you guarding yourself? Are you, in the words of the King James, girding up your loins for the fight of the day? When you go to bed, are you in prayer? Are you thanking God for the day and are you asking for good rest so you can fight the good fight again the next day? Every day of our life is a fight in this world of chaos and darkness. Guard your walk and witness at all times. Ninth, Paul tells Timothy to persist in these things. That's the very next imperative there. Persist in these things. In the second half of verse 16, bless you. As if it wasn't clear enough already, this whole section is a battle cry for Timothy to take up arms and stand fast on behalf of the gospel in the midst of the darkness that wished to overtake him. The fight would get difficult, and Timothy would most likely get discouraged and tired. And so Paul gives him the simple statement to persist. Despite difficulty or opposition, Timothy was to stand firm in the truth. Friends, there is a huge difference between the person that gives up and the person that doesn't. Do you know what the difference is? One chooses not to give up. It's a choice. It's a choice to get back up because you follow a God that did just that. He did not let death kill him. He resurrected in victory and power. And so we follow in his footsteps. We get back up. Paul makes it clear elsewhere that the final mark, in other words, the chronological final mark of a true believer is the simple mark of persistence and endurance. Think of the author of Hebrews' call to the believers in Hebrews 10, 36 through 39, where it says this, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The good servant of Christ Jesus will persist in all that we've discussed. Lastly, 10th, Paul tells Timothy to encourage the family of faith. We get this from uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. We have seen that by doing all these things, even at the end there of verse 16, that Timothy was participating in this act of salvation, in this work of of, uh, uh, sanctification. Notice that it says there, for by doing these things, persisting in these things, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is not an act of salvation where he is doing something that is akin to the cross. This is, in and of itself, participating in the work, the cosmic work of God that happens in every local church. And there's this need to do it together. He was not a man standing on his own, following his own path to heaven, if you will. He was a man who was doing it with others. And so in this last point, he starts to talk about how Timothy was to interact with the people of the church. And he broke them down into different demographics to do so. 
Now, you might wonder why I include this here, why I didn't just stop at the chapter break. Well, number one, chapter breaks and headings are not inspired, and so we just go along uh, in the flow of thought. But remember that Paul started this section with the statement to Timothy that he should not let anyone despise him for his youth. And this speaks to the likelihood that there were older men in the church of Ephesus, possibly even those false leaders mentioned before, who were looking down upon and dismissing Timothy because of his relative youth. But instead of giving him the go-ahead to rebuke these older men, Paul instead says, make sure you don't rebuke them. Paul had wisdom here. He knew that would not go over well. Instead, he says, encourage him as you would a father. And this word, encourage, means to invite near, to earnestly request. It comes from the same root word that is used to describe the Holy Spirit as the comforter and encourager. Paul is calling Timothy to be the Holy Spirit to those in the church, to treat them as family members in the household of faith. This is why we're so shocked when people abuse one another in the church, is because that should not be happening in the household of God. Friend, if you are feeling out of sorts lately in this church, whether you're sitting here today or you're there online, if you're feeling out of sorts lately in this church, recognize there will always be ups and downs in our feeling of connection. To expect differently is to set yourself up for disappointment because we are still humans and we have not reached glory yet. Amen? But in the midst of these ups and downs, remember that while blood may be thicker than water, uh, an idiom that means family bonds will always be thicker than friendships, the blood of Christ is stronger still. It has cleansed us from all impurity and purchased us to become members of the household of faith far more than simply friends or acquaintances or people who we co-attend a church with. Brothers and sisters, we are bound together in the Holy Spirit. Don't let anything else cause you to divide or isolate. You are wanted here. You are loved here. You are part of this family of faith, and we want you at our family meal on Sundays as we take together of the Lord's provision of the bread and cup, reminding us, of his death and resurrection. The family meal of God's people then resets our relationship with one another. And we are to then go forward treating one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus said that those who do the will of my Father in heaven obey his commands as it, uh, it is they that are family, my mother, my brothers and sisters. As we submit together to the will and command of Christ, we too are bound together in familial unity and then act towards one another in that spiritual reality. If you're sitting here or you're online and you've not yet become a member of this church, or maybe you haven't even been baptized yet into the Christian faith, I want to encourage you to do so. Repent of your sins. Be baptized. Turn to Christ. Enter into his people. We would love to do that for you and with you. Come talk with myself or one of the other elders or one of our other leaders or even the person that brought you, and they can come talk with us. And if you're not yet a member, we desire for you to be so. Why? Because we are a covenant family and we invite you in. As we look at this list of 10 things, it is important for us to ask some simple questions of ourselves. When we see a list of imperatives and commands like this, we can ask very simple questions to try and apply it. First, you can write down which of these might be an area where you see the Lord's hand already guiding you in strength. Where are you already walking in forward progress in some of these things? I want to start there. I want to start with celebration because this is a cause for thanksgiving and giving glory to him for his provision. 
I think oftentimes when we're Christians, we forget uh, that Jesus is the one who's doing any good thing in us. And so we get saved and we say, thank you for the justification, Jesus. And then we think that the sanctification is all on us. But the reality is, friends, is any good thing, any forward progress, even if it's a millimeter or a mile, is because of Jesus' work in your life by the Holy Spirit. What a cause for thanksgiving and giving glory to him for his provision. In your discipleship groups, when you discuss this question, I want you to praise God. Stop and pray and praise God for the forward progress you've seen in each other's lives. But then secondly, I want you to ask the question, which of these areas might be an area where growth is needed for you personally or even for us as a church? Which of these areas might be an area where growth is needed? What a great cause for petitioning the Lord regularly and asking him to grant you growth in that area and the mutual accountability with your brothers and sisters to grow in it. And then lastly, how can we as a church pray for and foster these actions in one another? We all need to be thinking about this. This is not a question just for the elders or the deacons or the staff so that we can build systems and programs so the rest of you can just consume. I love it when people say, oh, the church. Well, recognize if you're a member of this church, you're talking about yourself. You are the church. And so how can we, brothers and sisters, how can we as a church pray for and foster these actions in one another? This week, uh, go through the membership directory, if you're a member, and pray these things for the people that you know in this church and love in this church. How can we as a church pray for and foster these actions in one another? Well, let me finish with one last point that is not completely in the text, but is an implication of the text. And it's a command to me as a pastor from chapter 5. Friends, be encouraged that if Timothy needed this instruction, so do we. Amen? Amen. Listen to what Paul tells the church at Philippi about Timothy in Philippians 2, 19 through 22. To them he writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served, me, uh, served with me in the gospel. Notice that he says, I have no one like him. He is the starting quarterback of Paul's team. Timothy was Paul's best disciple. There was no one like him, and yet Paul still needed to encourage him to keep his eyes on the truth, to immerse himself in the truth, and to make forward progress for all to see. As we've been going through all these discussions the last few weeks of what mature, godly leaders look like, I wonder if some might be feeling like you don't measure up. Maybe that's you. Well, friend, you are in good company. That has been my exact same feeling. While some of these may be areas I personally feel like the Lord has given me great growth over the years, there are others I am still figuring out. But the good news is that our hope is not in our reaching perfection. Our hope is not in finding perfect, intimate friendship with one another. Our hope, as Paul noted earlier in verse 10, is only found in the living God, Jesus Christ. Every day he draws us closer to himself, and as we willingly participate in that sanctification, we see growth, and it is in that growth that God encourages us to keep moving forward. Friend, if you are discouraged because of what is happening around you or because of your discouragement in your own walk, then focus on Christ. 
Focus on Christ. Focus on his death and resurrection, his ascension and enthronement in your life. Recognize that it is by his grace alone that you were saved, are being saved, and will be saved to eternal glory. We have not obtained the fullness of knowing Jesus or his resurrection, but we are sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Forgetting what lies behind, we are straining forward to what lies ahead. So press on. Press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, be encouraged. If the Spirit of Christ is in you, he is growing you. Simply lean on him and agree to participate in that process and choose to immerse yourself in it. And if he is not in you, if the Spirit of Christ is not in you, then repent. His arms are open wide to you and turn to him today. Then and only then will instructions such as those Paul gave Timothy be encouraging and bring forth fruit. May the church have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to it this morning. Amen? Amen.